1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Graham Denyer-Willis. He is professor of global politics and society in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, where he is a fellow of Queen's College. We will be discussing his newly published book, Keep the Bones Alive, Missing People and the Search for Life in Brazil, published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2022. Graham, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be here to talk about this. Can you kindly
0: tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Thank you for that.
1: Uh, I grew up in a small town in British Columbia, Canada, um, about forty thousand people, and a long way from any major cities. Uh, and I grew up in a in a high school that was it was an interesting place, and you know it wasn't entirely nice as a process. Um, when I was 17, I was eager to leave, and I did a rotary exchange to uh, to a small town in Brazil, um, far from, again, any big cities. And that was a very interesting experience because I, of course, it was leaving a new place, arriving in a new country, didn't have any knowledge of Portuguese as a language, um, or really of Brazil as a country. Um, and my intent back then was was effectively to go back to to Canada and to uh, to do a degree in forestry, like like my father had um, many years previous. Um, but in what happened is that I was absolutely enthralled by Brazil, and I think entranced by the kind of inequality that I saw, but also with the ways that people were very inviting um, and the sets of conditions and society. That existed um, for me in in 1997 in Brazil was um, was interesting because of course it was a it was a moment just after inflation and of course it was a moment of redemocratization and so I think there was a lot of hope and a lot going on um, but at the same time Brazil was starting to to see this very significant and emergent problem of of, of violence especially of urban violence um, that was characterizing a lot of cities. Uh, and so when I left Brazil, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But I went back, and I knew one thing: I knew that I didn't want to do forestry. Um, that that was no longer uh, something that that really stuck with me. And so I managed to go on and do an undergraduate degree on the other side of the country at the University of Toronto in um, in Portuguese and what they called then Ibero-American studies. Uh, and in that process, I, I became committed and interested in in maintaining uh, both a personal commitment and connection to Brazil, but also uh, deepening an intellectual understanding of of what this country uh, was like, what it meant, um, how these conditions of inequality had become uh, socialized. um, And from there, it's kind of progressed deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on to do a master's degree in which I studied Um, The emergence of a a very major organized crime group, um, including interviews with some members and uh, with people in the communities that they they govern and control, and then eventually went on to do a PhD, um, which was an ethnographic study of the homicide police in the city of of Sao Paulo, um, police that were responsible both for investigating what what I talk about as, as mundane homicides, normalized homicides, uh, and also shootings by police officers which uh, at that period in time happened at roughly 3.2 times per day and so that that was my that was my first book called the killing consensus also published by california so my commitment really has been um to brazil uh, ever since ever since i first went um in the late 1990s uh, and i and i i often ask myself is there another trajectory for me and, and uh uh, and it's difficult to see to be honest.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: this um this is a book that uh, that actually I hadn't really planned to write uh it, it's a book that interrupted a different research project that I was thinking about and had started doing research on um, but but I think became necessary um. In I think it was 2016, maybe around May, the New York Times published an article. It was an investigation, really, um, by Nina Bernstein, who's a, an important reporter that had worked there for a long time on an island in New York City called Hart Island. <clears throat> and Hart Island is a very distinctive place in that it's, it's a, an island in the in the sound, um, but it's an island that's only for the burial of the urban poor. Um, the unclaimed, the paupers, and and the unnamed. And most people didn't know that it exists. Um, and they still don't know now. And there's many questions about, you know, what is it to have people who are not known or who are, um, who are denigrated for being um, problematic? You know, That's where a lot of people in the, uh, in the, in the historical moment of AIDS and the fear and moral panic surrounding it were buried. Uh, And when I read the article after I had done so much work on violence and homicide and and the questions around that in Sao Paulo, I asked myself, there must be places like this in virtually every city around the world where metropolitan authorities and cities must must have to bury people who are unclaimed. And if there's a place like this in New York City, um, you know, which is a major city, what does it look like in Sao Paulo, which is an absolutely gigantic city, right? 24 million people. Uh, a huge street population, poverty that is that is very dramatic, um, and and many questions about you know about how people are cared for, uh, and so I actually I undertook to to look into where those places were in Sao Paulo, um, what they signified and what it meant, um, and that revealed many different things to me, um, not just about about burial and cemeteries, but but also about um, how the state. Regiments and takes care of uh, of bodies when they um, uh, when they're discovered or found in the city, um, and uh, and in one of those cemeteries, which is a cemetery called Don Bosco, um, they unearthed a mass grave in 1992. Uh, that cemetery had been created specifically by the military dictatorship in 1972. Um, as a cemetery for the indigent, um, for the indigent and the unclaimed. And so the idea for them was this is where people who were nameless um, um, would be buried in the city. But the actual rationale for that cemetery was to create a space of namelessness and of uh, and essentially of, of obscurity where they could hide. Um, bodies of of the supposed uh, political insurgents, right? People who were fighting against the dictatorship, and so in that mass grave, they found they found more than eleven hundred bags of bones, um, uh, and and we know today that a number of those people uh, are are people who were disappeared by the military dictatorship, um, who used right who used a space like Hard Island to obscure um, people who they didn't want to be found. Um, as a process of disappearance, so that was all very striking to me. Um, but what was also very striking was the fact that, you know, though they had found eleven hundred bags of bones, which is, you know, could be could be at least eleven hundred um, people, but perhaps many more, um, we know today that that a maximum of five people in that eleven hundred are people who have been formally recognized as being politically disappeared in the dictatorial period. And so there are many questions for me that are raised by that. Well, you know, who are all of the other people that were disappeared into this mass grave? Um, you know, the urban poor, uh people who died on the street, like we don't know. They're 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 very much nameless. Um, but I think they're very much a part of of the problem of disappearance as it exists. So from that point, I then became exposed to, um, you know, to small groups of people who have been working on the question of disappearance, and to this very startling statistic um, that that in Sao Paulo, between 20 and 25,000 people are registered as as missing every single year. Um, And that led me in another direction towards, you know, who are these populations? Who are the people left behind? What are their interactions with the state? What does disappearance look like within the institutions of the state um and how does this problem right how does this problem um exist within political and social conditions that matter today specifically in brazil uh and essentially that's what that's what the book i think is about
0: what are the primary themes in your book what story does your book tell
1: the book the book is a means to to think about disappearance um, in a different valence than a lot of people have studied disappearance in Latin America and around the world. Um, this isn't to say that the existing studies on disappearance are wrong, not by any stretch, but many of them have focused on questions of of historicity, right? Um, disappearance as it happened in the Cold War, or uh, as it was an outcome of, of Direct political contestation, right? A rebel group fighting against the state, counterinsurgency, and disappearance of particular populations. Um, or in terms of things like genocide, right? Um, the, as we saw in the Balkans and things like that. So there have been a set of assumptions around a lot of studies in disappearance that this is a question of war, or of political upheaval, or of some kind of exceptional moment um, in which disappearance figures very strongly as a, as, perhaps a consequence or an outcome of that of that moment. And my work looks at this in a different kind of um, figuration by saying that disappearance actually is something that is happening all the time uh, and that often people are not conditioned to recognize it and what it means politically. Uh, and by that, I mean effectively that some people can disappear and have been disappearing and are disappearable um, as I describe in the book, and others simply are not. And so we have spectacular manhunts for some people and zero attention to other people who disappear in other ways. Um, And so the book really is a way to say, um, you know, disappearance is happening all the time. And we need to think about it as a problem. um, Because this is a question of inequality and of political conditions and regimes that
0: we live in today. Can you describe the 2014 report of the National Truth Commission? What did it reveal?
1: Thank you. Yeah. So the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was undertaken um, by the federal government of Brazil was very important, but also very contentious. Um, It was undertaken by Dilma Rousseff, who herself was a former um, political militant fighting against the dictatorship uh, in the in the 1970s um for a democratic opening uh, the truth and re- reconciliation process was intended to both name perpetrators um who tortured and disappeared uh political activists in the Cold War period um but also to advance the conditions to search for um the disappeared who remained um remain not found uh it was of course a very laudable process and very important and they got a lot of people to contribute to it um, but there were a lot of silences around it too. People who refused to be a part of it. Um, Jair Bolsonaro, the the then the, the the president of Brazil, uh, in subsequent years, was was very vocally against it um, and talked about you know the disappeared of that period as being as having deserved that that fate. And what I think is particularly important about that truth and reconciliation committee commission was that it effectively sought to delineate and specify um, who the disappeared were. Um, and in so doing then, of course, it could count and, and demarcate right, exactly who was who it was that had gone missing. Um, but in so doing, it set out a set of very particular conditions. And these were conditions like people must have, uh, have had a political affiliation with a party of some kind, they must have been actively political as part of a union or a trade movement or something like that, um, and they must have actively been, um, you know, fighting or recognized as being a part of this political process. And when they did that, they counted, you know, something around the range of three hundred and sixty people who were disappeared um, during the, the military regime. But they also note in that report that they had that they disqualified a few people from being recognized as formally disappeared, because they weren't formally affiliated with a political party, or with uh, an insurgent group, um, or that they weren't somehow uh, political enough to be recognized that way. So that process actually then, in, in recognizing some people as being political, polit- politically disappeared, also obscured a whole other population. Um, which to me is a question of that population that they that that most of the people that they found in that mass grave um, are a part of. Right. Which is to say the urban poor, the black population and many of those who actually in that in that period were were the specter of of the communist threat. Right. Was the the idea that this population, if it was to mobilize, was the the most significant problem um, confronting the military regime. Uh, and those that were disappeared and formally recognized as dis- disappeared were disproportionately white and middle class um, university students, and those who they saw as a threat of organizing this other, right, this other population. Um, but very, very few of any of the people who have been formally recognized as disappeared are from the urban poor as a population, or have been recognized as being a population that saw many people disappear, um, never to be seen again.
0: What do you mean by the term search for life?
1: So disappearance, I think, is a problem that is um, that is manifold. Uh, on the one hand, we think about it as an event, right? Someone is snatched, they vanish, they're gone from one moment to the next. And on the other hand, there is this persistent problem of disappearance as the kind of condition, right? Some people can go missing um, and not be pursued. Um, others, when they go missing, must be, must generate a search of some kind, right? With helicopters and uh, dogs and all sorts of things that go that go out and and search in in, in, in mass, in masses of people, right. The search for life to me is this larger question that is twofold. On the one hand, it is uh, the set of things that happen after somebody vanishes, which is to say there are mothers and fathers. There are family members. There are um, other institutions that are invested in in empirically searching for somebody who's not there anymore. right? Uh, and they must do it by, by, you know, by uh, with a peregrination through the city, um, through different institutions, like to all all corners of of uh, society, to search for somebody. And it is literally a search to find. Right. But on the other hand, I think about the search for life as as a larger condition which is to say that in Brazilian society with its inequality, many people are left behind and are not attended to with any kind of public policy to speak of. And so there's an absence of care. But that doesn't mean that people give up or that they put up with that set of conditions. In fact, there's many, many examples of the ways that Brazilians who are in those conditions have long struggled to make life possible um, in spite of the many odds. And in some ways, we could think even about the favela as a materialization of this, where a state has not provided, where there's been no attention to people and uh, their and their conditions of life. And they've had to struggle, organize, build, right, create connections to water, create uh, garbage disposal, create all of these things in order to actually be able to live a, a, a semi-dignified life. So the search for life is something bigger about how people struggle against disappearance all the time. That to me is a question both of agency, of what people do to avoid being disappeared or to avoid dying. Um, And there are many stories in the book of how that becomes an important part of what we see when we look closely at events of disappearance or at when people do disappear. But I think it's also a foundation and a basis for how we should think about what what I call mundane disappearance, disappearance in everyday ways of who can be disappeared, and who must not be disappeared.
0: What does your research reveal about the role of the Microsoft Corporation? Can you expand on this?
1: So that's a that ties into the last question, which I think is a very, a very poignant one. Um, in the last chapter of the book, I, I introduced somebody called Machias, uh, who's a young black man from from uh, from one of the southern, southeastern states in Brazil. Who struggles effectively in much of his life? Uh, much of his family is not present, and he and his grandmother, who's his last um, living relative, dies, and he's forced to live on the street. And as a young black man in a Brazilian city, he's subject to all manner of violence on the on the part of police uh, and other institutions. Uh, and so there's a period in that process. Where Machias actually is uh, is tortured and is threatened with death by police. He's thrown in a pit and his arm broken, uh, shot at by police. And he knows effectively that he must find a solution. Um, and what I do in this process is I is I I worked with Machias um, on his asylum file when I came to know of him uh, when he was at an ICE detention center in uh, in rural Georgia. Now, that process I think was very interesting in that it revealed to me, of course, the significance of Brazilians and their immigration to the United States, but it also revealed to me many questions about, about uh, international interests in disappearance. One of the bigger actors also in the book is a group called the Mães da Se, which is the Mothers of the Central Square. It's an organization made up of mothers Uh, whose sons and daughters or husbands or brothers, sisters, um, mothers have disappeared, and they organize by putting together uh, all sorts of information and data on everybody who has disappeared. And they've been doing it since the 1990s. Um, And what they do is they struggle essentially for recognition. They struggle for attention to the cause, uh, and they seek something, right, to, to enable them to find their loved ones wherever they may be. What struck me as important and distinctive is that one day, around 2018, Microsoft showed up on the doorstep of the Mais and said, could we have this database of missing people? Um, we would like to help you by creating an app, which you'll be able to use to help identify anybody on the street who may be in your database of images. And so they took the images that the the had had aggregated over decades and effectively um, built this app or subcontracted an organization to build this app uh, in which you could walk up to someone on the street, take a picture, and it would use facial recognition um, to match it against photographs in the database. Um, interesting and very problematic in a lot of ways because it's not exactly normal to go up to somebody on the street who you don't know and take a picture of them. Um, and to, to then expect that this might result in, in something like that. But when I traced the case of, of why Microsoft wanted this, it became apparent to me in both the way that they described it and in some of their, uh, work in the United States, that they really needed these images for another reason. And that reason was precisely around the case of somebody like Machias, which is that the United States has seen an increase in Brazilians, uh, crossing the border the southern border of the United States. And I think they saw that uh, a population of disappeared people or of missing people um, could likely contain images of people that might show up on the border, which is to say, people who decided to flee the country or left for other reasons, and that they could use uh, they could use facial recognition to identify those people if they did show up at the border. So Microsoft, of course, has has major contracts with ICE, um, and it, it has used those. It has used those images to um, to in, to include its database of cloud images um, to try to identify Brazilians as they cross the border. I think this case is very is very instructive in its own way because, of course, instead of being concerned <clears throat> about disappearance as a problem, what Microsoft has done is shown interest in uh, identifying people only in the case or only in the circumstance that they might try to cross the border thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers away from where they may have gone missing, right? Um, So I think there's a larger question, which I end on in the book about about the conditions under which the disappeared have become um, both a problem for millions of people around the world, but also in a way seen as a threat and something that must be responded to by those who are trying to border the wealthy societies of the world.
0: Can you elaborate on the experiences of Brazilians detained by ICE in the United States and say more about this in light of what you've alluded to?
1: Right. Thank you. So, Matias is only one of, uh, I think at the time, there were around 19,000 Brazilians that crossed the border in one period in uh, 2019. Um, it's a period, of course, of political upheaval in the United States um, with Jair Bolsonaro, but also Brazil has long suffered major problems of police violence. Um, as I alluded to earlier, right? Police just in Sao Paulo kill, killed around 3.2 people per day when I was doing my first uh, my first research project in Rio de Janeiro around the same time, 2018-2019. They killed 1,800 people. And in many other cities, the same problem is pervasive. Um, And so there's a problem of state violence that causes people to have to leave, to flee, right? To find other sets of conditions. Um, But at the same time, there's a major problem of what we describe as criminal governance in Brazil. Um, Criminal governance is a way, I think, to describe the the myriad different groups of prison-based organized crime that effectively have taken control of a prison system that is rapidly expanding um, in exponential proportions. And that's no exaggeration. It is actually exponential proportions. And these organizations are, are Creating regimes, rules, and control and governance over many of the uh, populations of the urban poor. Precisely these populations that I describe in the book as disappearable, as people who are not attended to by public policy or by the state or right, by other logics of of care and government. Um, and those populations, when left to the subjects of to be the subjects of violence of these groups, or to to join them as a means to protect themselves from violence. Um, That creates all sorts of other problems, um, which sometimes requires people to flee, right, to leave the cities where they come from. um, If there are there are uh, fates or problems that become them because of these organizations or because of police and these organizations that can cause them to have to leave on a moment's notice. And so we've seen a dramatic uptick in Brazilians having to leave Brazil because they've been threatened by these groups or by police. Um, or by other conditions of, of acute violence, um, and going to places like Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom to try to find uh, some respite from those problems. Um, and often those respite is not found, or it's found only on particular conditions where people can, can describe why they, they fit a particular mold of, of victimhood, um, uh, or of the possibility of being victimized when they do return. Uh, And so I've been involved in a number of cases around that as an expert witness. uh, And it's striking. It's very striking. Um, But there has been, up until recently, at least uh, a a major uptick in Brazilians having to leave Brazil because of the acute conditions
0: um, that they're subjected to. Who is Otavio? What does your research reveal about him?
1: Otavio is a very uh, important person in the book, but I think he's somebody that a lot of people in research would have, would overlook. Um, Motabio is, is a pretty much an elderly, um, black man. Who's a grave digger in one of the cemeteries of the urban poor in Sao Paulo. Um, he's worked for decades, um, doing two things. One, uh, disintering graves in the morning in the cemetery. Uh, and then in the afternoon, burying people in virtually the same places. Um, he's an important figure because in the book, I describe and work with him to make sense of the sets of conditions of the cemetery as they exist in very mundane and banal ways. Right. Things like like I mentioned, a cemetery in a city of 24 million people where people are buried at a rate of 10 to 15 minutes per um, in ten to fifteen-minute slots, <laughs> and that by regulation from the municipality, that must be must be disinterred after three years. Um, otherwise, if um, if they want to be kept in the ground, then someone has to pay extra money to keep them in the ground. And so, Otavio is somebody who is doing this work on an everyday basis, and yet um, shows an incredible attention to the humanity of these people who are buried on a very mundane basis, right? the urban poor who may or may not have family members who come with them at the graveside um, and with d- deep concern for um for family members that may come back right to retrieve the bones when um when people have been disinter- disinterred and their bones put in the the central ossuary in the cemetery And so he does a lot of work in describing and and showing concern and care for for people in conditions of what otherwise would seem like absolute um, desolation. Uh, He's also somebody, I think, who we wouldn't recognize because Mm -hmm. the cemetery is often seen as a space of namelessness and of quiet um where there isn't much agency and there isn't much much compassion it's a space where we might think about it as 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 silent or as um or as unevident um but he is somebody that that shows us i think of the ways that people are struggling constantly um to assert that life matters even in the most uh desolate of conditions
0: who is skinny can you elaborate
1: Skinny is uh, is a young man uh, who's important in the book primarily for for two reasons. Um, first, he's important because he's the last known contact of Caillou, who's a young man who disappears on a moment's notice, and uh, and he tells an important story about a series of different things. So Skinny is uh, is told uh, who Skinny is is told to me by Caillou's mother. Um, who, Deborah, who describes him as the person that is known to both her and the prosecutor as being the last contact that her son, Kaya, was with. She receives a phone call from Kaya one, one morning after going out with friends, and Kaya says, Mom, I, I have to go. I can't talk now. Um, I love you, and I'll speak to you later. And, um, in investigative work that Deborah does with a prosecutor, we come to know that Skinny is uh, is is somebody who's been in and out of the prison system um, and who has, of course, direct knowledge of what happened to Caillou, but he himself also disappears. Um, he disappears in a different way than many of us would think, which is to say that it's not that he disappears kind of out of... Um, out of malice from others, but rather that we they know that he has entered the prison system at some point after the disappearance of Cayo. Uh, and the prosecutor and Deborah do everything that they can to try to figure out where he is in the prison system. And in fact, they managed to get an arrest warrant for him um, and to bring him in for questioning. But there, is no, there, is, there are no means using databases or other tools available to a prosecutor who is a, a very authoritative figure in Brazil to even know where he is within the Brazilian prison system. And so Skinny is an important way to think about both the disappearance of Caio as someone that we know has disappeared and we can be suspicious about the conditions and who might have been involved. But on the other hand, also to say that that the prison system itself is a regime of disappearance and skinny as somebody who must be known or must be found out as as someone with knowledge of one disappearance, effectively disappears into another set of conditions that even to the state are not known, though those conditions are within its own institutions. Can you tell us
0: about Neide and Deborah? Why are they significant?
1: So Deborah, Deborah's son Kayo disappears, right? And we know that that Skinny has something, some knowledge of it. Um, and the other, the other mother that I spend a lot of time with is Neji, when her son Felipe disappears. And so the cases are are somehow different. Deborah is is a tall black woman from uh, from the urban periphery of Sao Paulo, in and out of formal employment all the time and struggling to get by. And there's a long story about her and her family and, and what, what was the, the life history of, of Caio. Um, Neiji is uh, also a woman who's from the urban periphery, but a vastly different part of the city, the south side. Her son, Felipe, disappears one afternoon uh, when he goes to return a motorcycle with a friend of his. And he's last seen being frisked by the police at a police stop. The motorcycle appears later down the road, uh, and but he's he's never seen from again. Neiji and Deborah I've spent a lot of time with, um, doing life history interviews, talking about the conditions under which they've had to search, thinking about how they've managed or have not managed to do um, to find their the son their son's bodies in uh, cemeteries of the urban poor, whether they were perhaps buried as indigents in uh, cemeteries like Don Bosco. Um, and to have a sense of what it means for them to search um, when there is such disinterest on the part of the state, um, save for the prosecutor, Ne um, Viviani in the book. And so these uh, these people are are central to the way that um, that the book um, struggles with the question of disappearance. Um, it, it deals and attends uh, to many of the ways that they suffer as a result, the forms of illness that become them. Um, but also of the relationship that they have between the two of them, which becomes very strong um, in their respective searches for their sons, uh, and what that is, what that makes possible to try to right to try to struggle against some kind of recognition of the lives of their sons. I first got to know them when I went to a, a protest in front of a, a courthouse in São Paulo in 2017. Um, when they and other members of the da se the Mothers of the Central Square, were uh, were protesting because the the, the city of São Paulo has been um, trying to privatize its urban cemeteries for some time now. Um, they think that somehow, if these cemeteries are managed by private interests, that they will uh, that they will offload some of the costs um, to other actors um, who may find benefit from it. But as part of this process. Um, What the city was going to do was it was going to take out and empty um, all of the bags of bones in many of the ossuaries in the cemeteries of the urban poor around the city, um, many of which were not identified uh, or unidentifiable. They didn't have tags on them. There are bones that were nameless and simply incinerate them in the city's one, uh, in the city's one crematoria. And they were outraged by this larger question um that these bones might be incinerated because what it meant is that it could be any one of their sons who were incinerated in this process and their struggle is against um is against these bones being incinerated um and it's where the the story the title of the book come from so their struggle to keep these bones alive so that they may one day be recognized and identified as people like their sons
0: can you say more about Felipe what does his story teach us
1: Felipe's story is a very important one in that in that we have a number of things that unfold in the process. He, of course, was last seen with the police who we know in Sao Paulo are uh, can be very problematic. Um, their violence is extreme, and indeed, we know historically, they they have um they have consistently been an institutionalized form of 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 violence and of of um, capital punishment. And so there's great concern, of course, that the police just disappeared Felipe and murdered him Um, um, and then, of course, obscured his whereabouts because they didn't want to be recognized for what they were doing. That's different, of course, than what people surmised happened to Cayo, which is that Cayo was disappeared because of organized crime or criminal governance who, who punished him for something that he may have done and that Skinny was one person involved in that process. Now, Felipe's case is, is also important because he disappeared with another young man. And that other young man is somebody who, who uh, whose parents don't show the same interest in searching for him that Neji does. And Neji struggles to understand why that's the case. Why do these other parents not show the same interest in searching for their son? Obviously, they went missing together. And obviously, the conditions of them going missing are intertwined. <laughs> and as such, the search for them both should be uh, should be together. Um, but the other question around this is not just, you know, what did this other family know or not know? Were they just subject to depression? Um, did they have concerns that were different? Um, but also that there is a kind of silence around that part of the story that uh, someone like Neji just can't really make sense of. Right. And so that, that's a a, 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 consi- a consistent part of how Neji herself struggles to make sense uh, uh, with searching and trying to find an answer to where Filippi has gone. Um, the other question about Filippi is is that uh, when Neji tells the story of him and everything she does afterwards in searching for him, um, she consistently comes back to you know where the police are in the story, right? Um, years after, there are people following her in plain clothes, right? Um, uh, outwardly, kind of middle class, uh, which is to say more white uh, and and in appearance less poor than other people, who she suspects are a big part of the story. Uh, and so that that's an important part of the question there too is is. Um, Though there is great suspicion and and doubt and an absence of knowledge of what actually happened to Filippi, the figuration of police in his story is very strong in a way that it is not in the story of
0: Caillou. Can you describe your personal relationships with the individuals described and narrated in the book? How did you meet them? What did they think of you? What did they learn from you? What did you learn about them? Are you in touch today? What do they think of the published book?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a long process, and as as an as an ethnographer, as somebody who is very deeply dedicated to Brazil, um, I've developed very long standing relationships, especially with Neji and with Debuda in this process, but also with uh, Prosecutor Viviani and others. Um, I see it as a very important part of the ways that this research um, has to be undertaken. Uh, and both Deborah and Neji were an important part of how the book took form. Um, they are the only two individuals in the book who are not pseudonymized. Um, there are pictures of them both in the book and the pictures of their son in the book. And so they are a big part of the book as, as a medium, right? As something that is intended to also say, here are, right, Philippi and Cayo, and we should recognize who they are. Um, I remain in very strong contact with them. In fact, we had an event in Cambridge uh, in May of this past year, um, in which we managed to bring together them from Brazil and uh, family members of, of disappeared people from Colombia, as well as people working on disappearance in Nigeria and Mexico uh, and elsewhere um, to 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 show them and to bring into conversation um, many of the people who are struggling with these kinds of questions did it for them to be able to show the techniques that they have developed, the forms of organization that are possible uh, and develop networks of solidarity amongst them um, to allow themselves to push forward these larger questions. Um, I think there's a larger sense in that process where they have had many questions about uh, what it's like to suffer a disappearance individually which seems like a very individual problem, right? It's one son or one's daughter who disappears. Um, but instead, people increasingly are recognizing and building networks of solidarity and of collectivity um, in, a, in a recognition that actually this question of disappearance is one of injustice and is one in which, um, in which struggle and uh, and attention and demands upon the state are necessary. Um, and that's, I think, an important part of what I see the project of the book itself is. It's not just an intellectual um, uh, project, but one that that must actually be twinned with uh, with a form of practice and attention to to everyday inequality.
0: What was the 1992 Karandiru massacre? Can you describe the perpetrators and the victims?
1: The Karandiru massacre is a very um, significant. A massacre in one prison uh, in the city of Sao Paulo in the early 1990s. Um, it's very significant for eff- effectively three reasons. Um, the first reason is that, uh, is that it was it was monumental in its scope, uh, in that effectively the police entered, riot police entered, uh, and ended up killing 111 people, uh, prisoners in in functionally cold blood. We know there was no there was no Active resistance to them, and um, all the evidence that is so, that's associated with us with it, is it shows that it's, it's it was a police massacre, a massacre by police of prisoners. The second um, major point of significance is that is that many people credit, including the organization itself, credit this massacre with being the origin story or the genesis of the Primero Comando da Capital, which today is Sao Paulo's largest organized crime group. Um, the organization itself has a statute in which it describes how this massacre is the reason that prisoners have to unite against uh, against uh, against prison conditions, but also the the consistent threat and the use of violence by the state. And so, the PCC has become something very significant over the last thirty years as a result of all of this it's an organization that spread out of Caranjiru in uh, within 2 years after that uh came to monopolize all of the prisons in sao paulo state and eventually uh has has moved on to uh, to dominate many of the prisons around around brazil and in fact when we see massacres in other prisons around the country what it often is is a struggle between the pcc and rival groups uh over the ability to to dominate um, prisons and, and the populations that exist within it. So Carandiru is also a moment, of course, at the end of uh, or in the midst of early redemocratization in Brazil, where there was a lot of scrutiny, concern about about police violence and state violence and what it meant for police to be transparently violent. Um, it was a massacre, of course, that has not seen has not really been repeated by police in the same kind of transparency. Um, police massacres like that in prison are, are nowhere near as common. And in fact, most of the massacres that we see in prison today are attributed more to battles between between these different organized crime groups that are vying for control amongst themselves.
0: How have prison conditions changed in the modern history of Brazil? How has the transition from dictatorship to democracy altered prison conditions in Brazil? How were prison conditions under Brazil's dictatorship different than under democracy?
1: A uh, very, very important question uh, and something that I'm working on very, very acutely now with a colleague of mine, Pedro Menges Loreiro at Cambridge. Um, there are some very, very striking stories that surround this. Um, and one of them is that though prisons in Brazil had a really um, were central to a very important discussion in the dictatorship period because they were seen as places of disappearance and of torture and of illiberal activities by an authoritarian authoritarian government. They were very small in number. Um, and so in the 1970s, um, Brazil itself had very few prisons, actually. It had, by our counting, somewhere even in the region of around 50 across the whole country, which then was a country with 170 million people, right? So the number of them, in fact, was very small, but the discussion around them was huge. That has changed dramatically. Um, since that period in time, Brazil has built uh, 1, 000, at least 1,450 prisons all around the country. Um, and so where there were around 50,000 prisoners in the 1970s, early 80s, today um, the country is poised to break the 1 million prisoner threshold. Um in the very near future. So the expansion of the prison system has been has been incredibly dramatic. And in fact, when we've looked at the evidence and the and the the statistics on the number of prison units built, um, it's been happening at an at an actual, an actually an, an exponential rate, um, which is saying doubling over time, right, as the number of units increase. The challenge there, of course, is that it is that Brazil is a federal country. It's a federalized country, and the national government has no jurisdiction over state policy and public security. So even the national government being concerned about violence is not able to just build prisons. Instead, what it's done is it's it's developed or it's new funding mechanisms, which allows it to generate income um, and revenue that it can then give to states to build prisons around the country. Um, and so in the last 20, slightly more than 20 years, they've uh they've developed revenue mechanisms like giving three percent of the lottery revenue um to a prison fund right which can be drawn on by states to build prisons. Um, but also the National Development Bank has become involved in in uh, debt funding prisons by giving money to local states and allowing them to build prisons This is a huge problem, of course, because uh, because prisons are the terrain of organized crime. So there are many questions about why would you build more prisons if effectively building more prisons increases the influence of organized crime, both in the places where prisons are, but also because these organizations uh, don't stay in prison. Um, They move far beyond. Um, so striking stories here about you know the the limited number of prisons that did exist, the inexistence of criminal government governance as we know it today in the 1970s, but today we know that there are at least something like 53 criminal government governance, governance groups in in Brazil um, that has precisely kept trend with this uh, dedication to building prisons at, at breakneck pace and with little. Um, with little end in sight
0: where when why how and by whom have prison massacres in Brazil been carried out
1: so the the Carangiru massacre as we we discussed was was a massacre by police um by by the military police in Sao Paulo state that occurred when police stormed into the prison to ostensibly quell a riot and killed more than 100 people in one shot um what what has happened since effectively is that the kinds of massacres and riots that we hear about in international news are happening for a slightly different reason, but not necessarily ones less political. Um, though the state is not necessarily directly involved in the kinds of riots and massacres that we see happening in prisons all around Brazil, um, they functionally have abrogated the conditions of prison management and prison governance to these organizations. Um, these organizations, of course, are are rivals um, there. There are some that are very, very significant and large, like the like the PCC, which has expanded into both Paraguay and Bolivia, as well as into um, into the Amazon region and the borderlands with Colombia. But there are many others also um, who have had rivalries, but also truces with other groups. But there are many concerns among them, of course, about about what happens when one wing of one prison is controlled by one group and another wing is controlled by a different group, um, which is who are rivals. Typically, when massacres occur under those conditions, um, uh, it's one group that has has rioted as a means to enter the wing where the other group is to dominate and take over that wing uh, and to monopolize the conditions of the whole prison. Um, when when that has happened, it's often led then to successive riots in other prisons. Um, in response to that, right in in the worry that one group having been dominated in one um, prison might happen in another, can lead to proactive violence on their part to enter a different wing um, and to dominate those groups. Um, but the larger story is 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 this political one is the is the political one where you have. The construction of prisons and uh, functionally a a devolution of the management of those conditions, including everything from the provision of beds, um, sheets, hygiene material, um, food, uh, who gets to sleep where, to these different groups to manage. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was doing research in, in Rio de Janeiro, um, it struck me as very significant that on the wall in the police station was a diagram of which prisons were controlled by which groups um, and where someone who was arrested should be sent to based on where they lived in the city. Um, so there is a there is a functional um, there is a functional alliance between the state using these groups and recognizing their presence, but also enabling them by creating more prison spaces. Um, and allowing this violence to exist. Um, But when it does exist, of course, they are the first to say, well, that's their violence. That is the violence of these people on their own people and they're criminal and they're not human. And so therefore um, we have nothing to say about it. It's not our problem. So the story of the massacre and of the riot over time is a significant one um, that's not without rationales um, that are very important and very political.
0: How does your book shed new light on Brazilian law?
1: The, um, Brazilian law is something very distinctive in that it's very formalistic. Um, lawyers are trained in very particular methods um, of thinking about law and of arguing for law. But on the other hand, there is law in practice, which is very, which is very much a question of um, how things work on the everyday and how uh, people who work within the state make sense of it. Um, there are lots of ways that police themselves speak to law on the books, but actually very much practice a law that is about um, signifying and symbolic forms of of legal recognition or of um, or upholding what they see as important. I think the case of disappearance is very important because, of course, what it what it brings to us is a recognition of of how we should rethink what law means when uh, the body is not, the body is not a central part of the logic of uh, of what law can be. Right. Um, of course, we have ideas like habeas corpus and a notion that one can assert a victim and a perpetrator and causality and who. Can be found guilty um, based on where a body is, what damage has been done to bodies, and uh, and who has been who has done it. Right. Um, disappearance is a way of us, is a way for us to say uh, because even though we don't have bodies, that doesn't mean that we can't think about the forms of justice and law that matter here. Um, but it's also a means to say that the absence of of bodies or a moment in history where disappearance becomes significant is an easy way for those who might be held responsible for this violence to deny their own responsibility um, precisely because uh, the bodies are not present, right? Um, So unlike counting homicides, for example, um, when you count disappearances, it doesn't necessarily signify violence in the same ways, right? Um, people are quick to say, well, that person may return soon, or, well, but weren't they drug users, or perhaps they've just gone and run away somewhere, and uh, and they're with someone else, right? And these are larger stories, I think, about, about when actually the Brazilian state um, uses the power of law to respond to forms of violence that matter in people's lives, uh, and the disappearance is one way to say that, or to see that the, the presence of the state is variegated. It's unequal in people's lives. It matters for some people more than others. Some people can trust the state and its uh, and its use of law, and other people just absolutely cannot.
0: Can you tell us about the role played by the Instituto Medico Legal?
1: Yeah. So the Instituto Medico Legal, or the IML, the IML for short is the coroner's office uh, in the city of Sao Paulo. It's the body that's responsible for investigating and looking into into bodies and and ascertaining whether or not the death of an individual was was caused by criminal circumstances or suspicious circumstances. Um, it's it's the uh, the ideal institution that that marries together a notion of medicine, law, and the body, um, which we of course have very strongly um, attuned to a positive way, positivistic way of knowing and understanding what law is, who a victim and a perpetrator is, and when the state right should act to um, to investigate or to search, and and assert justice. Um, in the book, uh, I look very deeply into the email, into this uh, coroner's office and do some ethnographic research within it to try to examine, right, what it looks like um when they are receiving tens of bodies per day, how they come to know and register them, um and to regiment, right, who a body is, where it moves through, and how it can be found by a family member who may be searching. And what I conclude is that the Iamieli is a place of of highly selective knowledge, right? Uh, Or of capricious knowledge, a kind of knowledge where there is an attention to particular kinds of conditions and people and an an inattention to others. So, for example, I tell uh, one of Neji's stories that she describes to me, how uh, years after uh, after Filippi went missing, um, she would go back to the Emieli and 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 ask them on their you know to 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 do some searches on the on the computers for people or bodies that may have been found around her, around her neighborhood, <clears throat> so that she may actually come to find uh, something right that might lead to Filippi's whereabouts. And on one event, she actually does find something when she goes back to the Emieli. She finds the case of a body. That had been buried as a as an indigent in at Don Bosco, uh, at the cemetery for the for the nameless, <clears throat> and uh within a series of days after Felipe disappeared. Um they say by law, of course, that you must uh they they cannot send bodies to be uh, buried until at least 48 hours after they're found. But 48 hours is a very short period for anybody who's searching in a city of 24 million people um and uh, and in the midst of a lot of violence and people dying on the street all the time so in any case neji finds this case <clears throat> of a body that that is found that fits a lot of the characteristics and there's a limited number of photos and they look a lot like felipe but she can't she can't be sure uh and so at the time she says to the attendant there she says i i this is a really important case i really think that we need to have this body uh this body disinterred and i need to find out where this um this body is so that i can actually do some dna test to find out if it's Felipe or not and the attendant says well you know the person in charge is not here today they'll be back on tuesday it was uh was the easter weekend so it was a long weekend and they just says okay i will call back right i will call back on the first day possible but on the weekend in the middle of a holiday weekend, she receives a phone call from this person, this uh, this higher up in the M.E.L. He's saying, "No, this is not um, this is not your son. It's actually someone else. We know it's this other person uh, who was nameless on the file, and claims that actually this case is closed and don't worry, it's not it's not anything that you can worry about. But it's just not Filipe. We know it's not Filipe." and so Philippe, and so neji tells the story of of deep doubt and suspicion about why this person on a holiday weekend you know when the when the coroner's office is closed would be calling her to say you know what this is not you know you should stop looking this is not your case this is not your son so i tell this, these stories to be able to try to understand how uh how the the emeli functions within a system where we actually should should understand the state as something that regiments right lives and bodies um, with medical knowledge and with legality. but actually we see that disappearance reveals something very different about how uh, how bodies are not regimented or they're regimented selectively and known and not known um, for for uh, reasons that are hard to understand.
0: What do you mean by muted martyrdom? Can you explain this concept?
1: So one day in the doing of the research, um, in one of the cemeteries, it's actually Otavio's cemetery. I was walking among some of the graves that had been recently disinterred. So again, after three years, um, all the graves are disinterred and the bodies are taken out and, and put elsewhere unless somebody pays, um, for them to stay in the ground longer and i stumbled across uh, three graves beside each other and they all had labels with images of the of the men and dates of birth that were the same and i recognized the uh, dates of death rather sorry and i recognized the dates of death as being very significant in fact they were dates of death that were the same day as i had previously been in the homicide division when there was a massacre by police on the street of a number of organized crime members from the PCC. Um, And it was a monumental massacre in that, uh, as I had seen it from inside the homicide division and had actually described it in my first book, um, we knew that it was was contrived, that actually the police had killed something like five people, but some of them were taken away alive from the scene and then shot afterwards. and uh it actually had generated that massacre had generated a series of reprisals by the PCC because they said it was unjust and the police should not have done this um and that they were going to respond um, and they were going to start killing police officers. But in the in the in the cemetery it was very distinctive in that I could see that everyone around these three had been disinterred <clears throat> except for them. And in recognizing, Uh, who I thought they were, at the time I wasn't entirely sure, Um, I could see that actually someone, perhaps the organization, perhaps other people, had paid to keep them in the ground, and that there was some assertion of dignity for them that mattered in a way that was different from everyone else around them, um, you know, who had been disinterred. This case, I think, is very emblematic and indeed revealing uh, because what it showed to me was that there were a series of claims over these lives, right? Um, A kind of search for life for who these people were that would have mattered not only for stating that what happened to them was wrong, but also signifying to anyone else in the organization that they would be commemorated, celebrated, right, humanized, even if if they were shot by police, and especially if they were shot <clears throat> by police. I expand that case to thinking about um, how the PCC as an organization has something which um, which I describe as a kind of life insurance. So I've looked into their own internal documents, um, which I've published on in a number of different places, and their internal documents describe um, a series of different payouts that they make for members um, to the families of members um, when they die prematurely. Um, And these are payments that both go towards a dignified burial, but also they're payments that go to families so that they can survive and make do in the aftermath of not having somebody around any longer. Um, The idea of muted martyrdom enters here in important ways in that I describe how Sao Paulo and in Brazil, it isn't that people uh, don't claim people as martyrs, which is that someone has died for a cause or for a community, but rather that claiming people as having died for this cause or for this community must happen in hushed and quiet conditions. Uh, And when it happens, it happens within Cemeteries of the urban poor, and it happens in ways that are not spectacular, or on the street, or uh, or raucous, um, as as we often think about martyrdom and other conditions. Um, In fact, when it does happen in raucous or loud ways, um, cemeteries that have been, uh, sorry, burials that have been um, assisted or financed by organized crime groups, have been subject to further reprisals by the state who says that people involved are then uh, can be and should be arrested for apologizing for violence or for being associated with organized crime groups and things like that. So the idea of muted martyrdom is important to say, here is a set of organizations and people and assertions over life that matters that is happening in very quiet conditions and in very important ways but not in in a way that it is seeking outwardly a claim upon the state or society more broadly to recognize why these lives matter um, and for a justice on that scale, right? Um, Instead, it happens in a way that is much more local, that does not need to be loud and public, um, but is nonetheless incredibly strong and significant
0: for the people in that community who are Mariana and Marlena. Can you tell us about them? What lessons can be derived from their experiences? Mm-hmm.
1: Mariana and Marlena are a mother and a daughter who, who I engage with, um, significantly in the book. Um, unlike the other um, people who disappeared and the mothers, Um, They are pseudonymized for a reason. Uh, The case is significant in that um, the daughter went missing after leaving church one evening and wasn't seen from again. And the mother went searching for um, the daughter and tirelessly throughout the city, institutions, police, the state, everywhere, and couldn't find her. But had deep suspicions that it was her daughter's husband, who was involved in her disappearance, they were estranged. Um, they had a son, and there was something significant about how he was showing disinterest in her disappearing. And so, when I spoke with uh, uh, with Madalena in this process, I asked her, you know, about whether there were any other interests involved or people who she had turned to for assistance in the process. And she said to me, well, we're like anyone in one of our communities. We have people who are involved in many different uh, organizations and life worlds and things like that, and inferred that actually somebody who she was close with um, was a part of an organization almost entirely, uh, certainly the PCC, that she once spoke to about this case. And when she did, she said to them that she was very suspicious that it was her son-in-law that had disappeared her daughter, uh, but she didn't know and he wouldn't admit it. And she was concerned about her grandson who was in his care, but he was um, not caring for well, let's say. And they said to her, well, if you would like us to find out, to know if it was him or not, just leave it to us we'll we'll talk to him and if it was him he will admit it we will find the means for him to state that he admitted it and she was really concerned about this about this case because she was somebody who was a fairly devout religious person evangelical and said to them effectively but if he admits it will you then allow me to call the police and uh and we would we would effectively take him to the police and he would confess to the police and they said no no if we find out that he did it if he admits that he did it then we will resolve this problem ourselves and so she was faced with a very difficult choice she was faced with the difficult choice of perhaps finding out if the person that she most suspected was involved with the disappearance of her daughter was the person who did it or stepping back and not doing it or or finding out that he did do it and then leading to perhaps yet another disappearance, which would again, probably never be reported to the police. It was a very difficult conundrum for her to deal with. Right. If this group actually did find out that he had done it, uh, and, and did disappear him or do him harm of some kind, she knew that then her ability to stay in touch with her son or with her grandson would be negligible. Um, that there's no way that she would be able to have custody over him or or anything like that. And so she decided that though she could have found out and that likely this organization would have forced the man to say yes or no, um, she decided not to find out. And she left the case as it was uh, and remains struggling and searching for, for her daughter, even though she has this nagging sense that the person who uh, most likely was involved is right there in front of her still.
0: Who is Teo? Can you say more about him? Why is he notable? Mm-hmm.
1: So Teo is, uh, is an important figure in the book precisely because of uh, a topic that we were discussing earlier. Uh, Teo was a PCC member uh, who, uh, uh, who was a fee-paying member and was a part of the organization and to be a part of the organization you have to be baptized in and affiliated with uh with the organization and to do so you pay fees on a on a regular basis a monthly basis it's not it's insignificant but it was about 800 hayes at the time um which in US dollars would be at least 200 250 dollars a month Now that money is, again, it's not insignificant, um, and they don't stipulate how you raise that money, whether it's robbing people, being involved in the drug trade, um, dealing drugs, trafficking, whatever the case may be. You could even have a job and just pay your dues. It's fine. But in the records of the PCC that I've looked at diligently, um, including with a colleague, Ben Lessing, um, we've written an article on this called um, uh, Legitimacy and Criminal Governance, Um, we examine the ways that uh, the PCC does these payouts for members who are killed by the police or killed while engaging in PCC business. So in some of their records, they describe Teo's case. They describe how Teo was killed while on a job, is their terminology. And when he died, they paid out a specific amount to the family member for both his burial and for uh, and for the family members to make do afterwards. And it's not an insignificant sum by any stretch. It's several thousand heis, which is um, even even upwards of a thousand dollars. Which is very significant, especially when you consider how much the Bolsa Família, which is the conditional cash transfer program, is, which was until recently only about uh, only about thirty dollars a month. Um, and so Teo is a is a person who fits very centrally to the way that I describe muted martyrdom as a problem, and how he becomes somebody um, like those three in the cemetery, who the PCC would have commemorated and dig- made dignified um in his death right as a means to claim life and to assert that the work that it does and the community that it has is important right is important for asserting life even though um they are constantly the
0: subject of uh of state violence what does your research teach us about forensic archaeology
1: I think it's it's an important story I mean the book is not as so much attuned to to that as a question um Partly because I think I, I see this question as a highly political one. The question of forensics is is one that, to me, is is strewn with larger considerations around uh, who can access it, um, the equitable, n- the inequitable nature of getting DNA tests, uh, and of the politicized and capitalist nature of knowledge itself. Um, and so I wouldn't say that my book is so much a contribution to forensic anthropology, so much as a, as a means to to try to remind that the larger question of people disappearing and of knowing who they are and where they've gone and how we might struggle to know who they are is is um can never be reduced to questions of forensics. There is always a much larger political condition that surrounds who can be known, how they're known, and what access to knowledge looks like. What is your book's
0: contribution to perpetrator studies?
1: This is a a larger question, too, for thinking about what it means to be a perpetrator, right? And whether we can actually reduce many questions of significant systemic problems, like disappearance, to the relationship between individuals. Uh, And so I think we should see these kinds of problems in a much larger scope around what we would see as perpetrators and
0: victims and what it means to reduce people to perpetrators and victims. What does your book teach us about the phenomenon of social death?
1: I think the major issue with social death is that it is a story about people without ties or about the insignificance of people's social relations and being not known to others or not recognized by others. Um, when we think about disappearance, it's very important because of the way that disappearance can be a question of when someone is recognized as, uh, as disappeared um, is a question of whether they are socially dead, which is to say, if someone who is not uh, who has no social ties disappears, Um, they may never be accounted for as having disappeared or as somebody that was, right, that has gone missing. So disappearance is both uh, a question of an individual who is not there anymore and has disappeared, but it is always a question of social relations, of what that person meant to those around them, of what it means for them to be gone, about what the circumstances are that, uh, that follow forth from somebody disappearing. Uh, and when we have a question around someone who is estranged from a family, who has gone to live on the street, or who suffers from particular kinds of disabilities that that uh, that um that disable them from being uh, in touch with others or from loved ones, um, those people are not easily accounted for as having disappeared or as being right, somebody who uh, who, uh, is disappearable now I think that also really matters when we think about something like the figuration of the pauper or the pauper's grave or of the cemetery for the nameless and the urban poor because those categories can blur together very easily right um if Don Bosco was a cemetery that was built specifically for the socially dead right which is to say the unclaimed the nameless uh and those who cannot pay for a burial um, then we see something very distinctive about the relationship between what the state uh, sees as a population of socially dead, but also um, that in the 1970s, the dictatorship saw that population uh, of socially dead people as useful, as a place that they could obscure uh, people that they were trying to actively disappear Uh and that, that, I think, is a is a, is a a more major um, systemic thing to think about um, when we think about what states do, what that dic- dictatorial government did, um, but also that we remain in a place where we don't know who most of the people who were buried in the mass grave in Don Bosco were, which is to say that those people, whoever they were, became socially dead and remain socially dead in that no one is pursuing knowledge for who they were, um, why they died, whether they were victims of state violence, uh, perhaps leaders of black movements or of the urban poor or anything like that. Uh, And so these are bigger questions about the figuration of social death, its usefulness, uh, and what that actually comes to to look like in materiality and in burial uh, and in state institutions that follow from that.
0: Can you comment on the anthropology and social geography of cemeteries in Brazil?
1: What I think is important here is that the cemetery is not a place that has been really richly studied, um, especially when it comes to thinking about it relative to inequality. There are many big ideas about what cemeteries are and how they have changed that come from Foucault and from uh, and from some, some of the debates about changing medical knowledge um, in uh in the you know the late 18th and 19th centuries um where cemeteries moved from centers of cities where death was very central to social life to being exerted from the city because the cemetery and bodies were seen as infectious and problematic vectors for disease and things like that so the cemetery itself has become a place that that is exerted not just from cities generally but also from a lot of discussions about about, um, about their significance. Right? Yeah, I think it's in, in, in that way, my return to some of the questions about what happens inside cemeteries, you know, by people like Otavio, or by processes like muted martyrdom, or the PCC, right, struggling to dignify people who have been killed by the police, is a way to say there's a lot going on in these spaces of sociality that are both created by the state, but also something much more significant than that. Um, and that in that space, which is a space of, we would think of as death or disappearance or commemoration perhaps, or right, or of coping with, with death, we can actually see very significant and emergent forms of social organization. Um, that matter what is your book's
0: contribution to criminology
1: I would say you know criminology is an interesting field in that it it is asking some some fraught questions I think on the one hand right uh, that you know the struggle to reduce many large questions to questions of individuals and perpetrators is uh is something that I would I would certainly push back against um because I think there are larger questions here of power and social relations and inequality and capitalism that are often um, sidestepped by some of the the larger work on criminology. Um, Though, of course, there are many exceptions to that. Um, But the, the question of disappearance, I think, for me is to say, you know, there is something about violence, justice, and crime here that is much, that is much bigger than what we might see. Um, and that ultimately we are talking about systemic social and, uh, and, uh, and political conditions of violence that, that, that matter, um, and that
0: cannot be reduced to interpersonal relations. What is your book's contribution to memory studies and the study of memory?
1: The, um, I think that the, the book though, I don't spend too much time talking about, about this aspect of it. I do spend a lot of time thinking about what it means for people who are dismissed, right? Who are disappearable, um, who are not recognized as human, finding the means to memorize, to to make memorable their own people, right? Um, The idea of muted martyrdom is one significant way that I talk about this, that this is a population that recognizes itself as being the subject at any time of death. Uh, and that in in being the subject of, of, of death in such an omnipresent way requires them or compels them to find new means of saying, we are, are not dead. Uh, we are, we will make ourselves memorable, we will assert life out of conditions of death, um, as they have done. I think there's something important there that says there is something about memory for this population that emerges from historical political conditions and that though it's very significant and prominent in the way that they make these claims these claims are not these claims for memory are not necessarily being made to a wider public um, as we might think uh, that memory claims for memory should be made Can you describe the cherry tree park
0: cemetery of course
1: so the cherry tree park cemetery is a is a is a private cemetery on the south side of sao paulo and in many ways it's uh it's a lot like a golf course it's lush and green and there are koi ponds uh and to go there you would you would think you're not in the city of sao paulo uh it's a private cemetery though consecrated right as ground that is um that can be used for burial and it's functionally accessible to the urban elite it has security guards 24 hours a day um and the means for people to enter is is permanent right so when someone is buried there they are buried in conditions that are uh undisturbable it's different of course too than what we would think about as um, some of the cemeteries that have been important in Latin America in general, which is to say right the cemeteries more central to cities with mausoleums and 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 very or very um opulent and ornamental um figures and statues right um that go on mausoleums in particular ways so the cherry tree Park cemetery is a is a more modern cemetery um, that steps slightly away from, Um, from the ways that Latin American cemeteries historically um, and spatially exist in cities. What's important about the Cherry Tree Park Cemetery is not just that it is this elitist space golf course like in the south side of Sao Paulo um, in a very unequal part of the city, but that it itself exists in conditions of inequality that are distinctive. And I describe that in the book as particularly distinctive because um, the police come to discover that there is a mass grave adjacent to it, just on the outside, against uh, one of its fences. And this mass grave is one that has been created by the PCC um, for people that have broken its rules in the communities that it governs. And in that place, they have buried a number of people um, that they deemed to have broken their rules um, uh, as though somehow uh, this adjacency, but also vast difference between being buried amongst uh, grassless trees near a favela uh, against Cherry Tree Park is significant in its own way. So there's something significant about both Cherry Tree Park as a cemetery, but also of the spaces that are adjacent to it, the favela on one hand, this other mass grave, um, and who governs these different places and who they're accessible to, um, that I describe in great depth in the book as being significant and revealing uh, of inequality in the city.
0: What does your research teach us about the sociology and psychology of evil?
1: My consideration of of evil or the larger questions about how we might identify that as a problem of individuals um is uh is much larger. Right. I think the the idea that we might state that some people are evil and as such should be subject to particular forms of punishment. Um that's that's not really where I'm going with this book. Um to say that differently uh there are major social figures in Brazil that um, that are often uncontested, but that do an incredible amount of work in justifying particular kinds of violence and policies against it. For example, the criminal is uh, is a category that becomes that enables the state and others to actively use violence against somebody who is seen as that category. Um it's also the kind of category. As somebody that someone is seen as biologically right, biologically evil or biologically criminal, that enables police to both kill people, but also becomes a justification for the construction of prisons at new scales of significance um, and in other ways. So I push back at larger assertions of individuals as evil or as evil as an explanation, because I think. Uh, asserting that these people are evil or that there's something significant about them biologically um does work that allows um that allows people who um, who want to be separated from populations seen as evil uh to live right in different ways that uh, that leaves inequality untouched
0: what is the maestro de prasa de same movement you alluded to it earlier but I was wondering if you could elaborate slightly more about this movement?
1: So the mais da se or the mais da praça da se is uh the, the mothers of the central square movement it's an organization largely of mothers but not only so um whose sons, daughters, husbands, fathers, um uh wives even have gone missing and it's significant um both for what it is and what it does and that it is a first port of call for basically anybody whose loved one goes missing um they offer the means uh to uh to search they allow they give resources for how and where um and they're a means for people to recognize a community of people in similar circumstances um, it's a dramatically underfunded organization that struggles to get by on an everyday basis um, and virtually is run by one or two individuals on a on a, a primarily voluntary basis. Um, they meet usually every second Sunday or so in the central square of Sao Paulo. But the other reason that I think they're significant is that, uh, is that in some ways they are They hearken the Madres del Plaza de Mayo in in, um, Argentina, which is a a group of mothers and grandmothers who have argued for the recognition of the disappeared in Argentina, um, primarily during the dictatorship years. Um, And that group has been well discussed and researched and described as being quite central um, as a movement uh, seeking justice but also as a part of the transition from Argentina's dictatorial years to to redemocratization. And so their movement has been very significant, remains significant in asserting uh, that uh, that democracy uh, must come and that those who were perpetrators of violence um, during the dictatorship must be come to justice and that bodies must be found and accounted for. By contrast, the conditions of the Maes da Praça Sé is a bit different in that they don't have the ability to point specifically to the state as a perpetrator um, for the disappearance of their sons and their daughters or husbands or wives or brothers or sisters. Uh, in their conditions, which are post dictatorial and democratic, uh, it could be anybody who was involved in the disappearance of their of their loved ones. Or it could be the case that people very quickly say that the disappearance of someone was their own fault, right? that they were involved in something they shouldn't have been involved in, or that they did something they shouldn't have done or something like that. So the conditions of struggle and organization for the mais da prasa da se is, um, is important to think about in other terms um, and in other ways that, uh, that both point back towards the, the political conditions, which are larger than the state, um, and the conditions in, in which the organization struggles to make do um, with the kinds of uh, violence and suffering that it, that it sees in front of it. Um, unlike mothers' groups in, say, Mexico, contemporary mothers' groups or groups that search for the di- disappeared in Mexico, the Maís da Prasa de Acer in Sao Paulo um, has a different set of conditions of searching. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Sao Paulo uh, is very fragmented and where people disappear is quite different than how people understand it in Mexico, where groups organize uh, to search specifically for huge mass graves where they might actually find the missing. Uh, and so the Maes da Prasadase da is an important organization to think about and to think with and to work with and to support. Um, but I think it's also very revealing of of the kinds of historical political conditions that have changed that make these groups, right, more recognizable or less recognizable um, with the problems that they seek to confront and struggle against.
0: As as we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us where, where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, the transition from one project to another is always um is always interesting because it leads to new opportunities, but also asks people to leave behind a, a different project, and that that uh, to me is a is a struggle. Actually, um, the the ways I've been thinking about uh, research and where I go from here still maintain some of the, the many questions in place. Um, I'm I'm very concerned, of course, with the nature of Brazil's prison system. Uh, and have begun work on uh, on research and with a larger project that asks specific questions about who is funding, financing, and benefiting from this dramatic expansion of Brazil's prison system over the last 30 years, right? Um, so to go from 50 prisons to close to 1,500 uh, since the 1980s is no small project Um, and it's a project obviously that's going to be both very deleterious for some people but also have massive benefits for other people Um, and I found some very interesting things in this project that are very global that I want to explore more fully um, such as a turn towards privatization of some of these prisons um, and also that uh, that prisons have become useful for some people that we might find unsurprising Um, for example uh, uh Valley which is one of Brazil's largest mining companies it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange uh signed an accord with with Minas Gerais, the government of Minas Gerais which is a very significant state in Brazil to build prisons for it uh, as part of what it sees as a corporate social responsibility Enterprise um And so I think we're seeing some very strange uh, forms of investment in in this prison expansion. Um, that I would like to explore more fully and to think about, you know, who benefits from these many conditions of violence and disappearance um, that are longstanding problems in Brazil, Um, and that ultimately we need to find the means to, um, to struggle against more fully.
0: Thank you. Thank you for your generous, eloquent, and erudite answers throughout the course of our dialogue today. I could not be more grateful and could not be more thankful and appreciative. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Graham Denyer Willis. He is professor of global politics and society in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. There, he is also a fellow of Queens College we have been discussing his newly published book, Keep the Bones Alive, Missing People and the Search for Life in Brazil, published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2022. Thank you.